Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Captive Lions. When God pokes at that last $5 bill in your pocket and asks you to give it away to some needy soul around you, how do you respond? With a mountain of grudging, hesitant, moaning, groaning complaints? Or do you leap forward with wholehearted eagerness like a lion springing from its cage? Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Okay, very rarely do I give a subtitle, but Captive Lions is the title. You'll notice a subtitle here. Every now and then I whip this out because Captive Lions is somewhat misleading. It doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? But then I say a study in cheerful giving. Can you think of two things that sound more opposite? Captive Lions and a study in cheerful giving. Okay, so this, this message has a little intrigue to it just as we kick it off. But it works. A captive lion is everything that this message is, and everything this message is is about being a cheerful giver. By the way, this, this message isn't about money. I'm not going to try and get money out of you, and so this is my little technique to start out the semester while you still have money and see if I can extricate it from your pocket. <laughs> Most of us, when we hear the word giving... Think of tithing. We think of giving to a church. Well, it's not that that's wrong. That's a perfectly wonderful thing to do. However, that's not what this message is about, even though that could be an accoutrement or an attribute or an ancillary thing that could be gained out of this message. Money is one thing that we possess, but we have a lot more than money. And so as a cheerful giver, we give our life, not just 10% of income. 2 Corinthians 9, but this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, here's our key line, for God loves a cheerful giver. What a strange statement to make in Scripture. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, most of us don't actually process this through. We may have heard the scripture, but there's actually a deportment of soul that God delights in, not just the giving. It's not just that God loves a giver, which most of us would conclude, oh, that's wonderful. God would love a giver. I'm sure he does. However, there's a specific attribute to this giver that God hallmarks in scripture. No, no, no. Pause there, Eric. I want you to include the word cheerful. He doesn't just love a giver, and so this isn't just a message saying, hey, you need to give to be right with God. God loves a cheerful giver, and so this is an atmosphere of soul, an attitude of soul that governs the Christian. We are, by definition, if we are Christians, cheerful givers. However, for most of us, that wouldn't necessarily be the description that someone would tag on us. Because we aren't naturally cheerful givers, and in the process of discipleship, Most of us have never actually had this area touched, and we find ourselves begrudging givers. And so when God comes to us and says, hey, uh, I was just wondering about that, that, yeah, that. We're like, what? I don't don't see anything. Yeah, you do. It's it's right right there. See, it's hidden behind, you know, this little wall that we've built. And we're trying to hide it from guys. Yeah, right there. And when it finally gets exposed, the light shines, and we're like, oh, I didn't see that there. We're begrudging givers. Like, all right, for the glory of God, I will give this up. That's not what it says in Scripture that a Christian would be defined as. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I know that might sound like a stretch from where you're at right now, but that's the whole purpose of this message. 
God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, have always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, that's the context for that amazingly powerful statement about grace. It's in the context of God loves a cheerful giver. You see, when you sow sparingly, or when you give little, you receive little. But when you give abundantly, or bountifully is the word used here, bountifully, then you receive bountifully. Simple principle of scripture. And when you're giving, because you understand the principle of how God's kingdom works, you give with a smile in your soul, saying, I know how this works. I cannot outgive God. That's not the way we pop out of the womb, though. This isn't the way we naturally function. And so this message presses on something in our souls. Every one of the men in here that has a family, this is a This is a challenging message. We start to wriggle in our seat just seeing the subtitle. Cheerful giver. Oh, no, not one of these messages. (laughs) The three principles of heavenly giving. Okay, so I extricated three principles out of this. I'll just go through them very quickly. So bountifully. The word bountifully. Beyond that which is comfortable, normal, traditional, or expected. See, we know what is normal. You know, and so most of us, you know, we try and stay within that. What is expected of me? All right, well, what will make God happy? You see, that's the way most of us give, if we give at all. We try and give up to the legal standard of what is required of us. But that's actually not what bountifully is. He who sows bountifully will receive bountifully. Number two, do it cheerfully, which would mean instant. Now, cheerfully, this is what we're going to unpack this entire message. Because to us, that just means with a smile on your face, which, by the way, is part of cheerfully. But do it cheerfully, instant, without hesitation, ready as the lion to spring from his cage. Uh-huh. You get a little hint as to the, the title here. Without complaint, without duress. In other words, no one's forcing you to do this. You want to do this. It's your privilege to do it, and you don't want anything to hinder you from being able to do it. And with smiling eagerness. Finally, given full faith. Why? Do you remember the final statement here? Let me go back here. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Why do we begrudge? Why do we hold back? Because we're afraid we will not have sufficiency in the time of need. However, God says, "Uh -uh, mm, uh-uh, full faith here. You see, a principle of giving is you do it, let's go through it, bountifully, cheerfully, And in full faith, wholly confident that the heavenly aquifer will never run dry. That which is supplying you, what little you have now, the same source is not going to stop. God does not change. He does not end. He does not have a period. He does not conclude. He is a provider and he has not forgotten you. When you sow bountifully, you have a legal hold on heaven. Saying, well, I will receive bountifully. Which is why you can do it so cheerfully, because you're doing it in faith, knowing that your confidence does not rest in the economic systems of this earth. It rests in the provision, the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God who cannot lie. Introducing the captive lion. C.T. Studd has a quote. This is, this is a doozy of a quote. I love this quote. In peace, true soldiers are captive lions. You see, a true soldier is built for battle. So in a time of peace, what are they? They're a captive lion. Listen to this. Fretting in their cages. War gives them their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school. 
They are so eager for battle that they're like fretting lions in their cages. You ever seen that lion pace back and forth? What's he looking for? He's looking for some out. He wants to be a lion, not in a cage. He is built to be a lion, and lions aren't supposed to be caged. A true soldier is like a caged lion. They're like a boy bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes him a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. Oh, what a quote. I love that quote. All right. You can download the notes for this. First Greek word for the day, dekomai. Now, I gave this uh, Greek word, it was, I think, over Christmas time when I was talking about the little inn in Bethlehem that they did not dekomai Jesus when he came. He was in Mary's womb, and the goodman of the house, or the innkeeper, did not decomai. He did not receive Jesus. Okay, the whole principle of Christianity is to decomai. When Jesus comes a-knocking on your inn, are you going to receive him or say, there's no room here? We're doing other business. We have our own interests at stake. We don't have time for you. You know that there was a prophecy in Israel for hundreds if not thousands of years that basically the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They knew it. They, so if you're an inn in Bethlehem, you know that he's going to come out of Nazareth because he's going to be born in Bethlehem? This is the place. And if you're an inn, boy, you're the perfect establishment to receive him when he finally comes. So there's a watchfulness. There's an eagerness. He's going to be born here. He's going to be born here. However, when he finally came, they weren't ready. And so part of cheerful giving and part of the concept of giving is going to be watchfulness. Now, there's another, oh, let me see. I'm going to read the definition. To take with the hand, to take hold of, to grant access to a visitor, to not refuse friendship, to not reject. In Matthew 10, it uses this word, he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So you, you learn the word decomai. Now look at this word, prosdecomai. To anticipate the long-awaited arrival of a friend. So the difference between decomai and prosdecomai is the friend is not at the door. But he is given sort of that letter, that notice saying, I'm coming. Prosdecomai stands at the window and looks out and says, I know he's coming any minute now. I know he's coming. It's watchfulness. Prosdecomai is a watchfulness to receive. It's a watchfulness to receive when he finally comes, to anticipate the long-awaited arrival of a friend, to stand at the window and watch for the promised coming, to be expectant of the arrival, to open up your house to a promised coming of a guest, to prepare a house for the soon arrival of a royal guest. When God promises that he's going to do something, you prosdecomai, and you position yourself because he is going to perform. He will do it. I received the, the letter from my God, and he said he's coming. That's good enough for me. We're known as believers. We believe the promise. We believe the word of God. What it says is fact. And we prosdecomai. No, my God's coming. Everyone could say, come on, what are you doing with your inn? You're leaving it empty? Yeah, because the king is coming. And this is his inn, built for his glory. When he comes, there will be room in it for him. So the word prosdecomai and decomai are both used in this little passage, talking about Simeon, the man who awaited or prosdecomied for the coming Messiah. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting 
for the consolation of Israel, standing at the window and saying, it's coming, it's coming, the Messiah is coming. He promised and he cannot lie. He's coming. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, what did he do? He decomied. Then he took him up in his arms. He received him, is what it says in the Greek, unto himself. He prosdecomied so that when Jesus came, he was ready to receive. One of the principles of giving is this exact principle. It seems opposite because it's talking about receiving. And so you can say, what does this have to do with giving? We have to recognize that giving is an opportunity that we receive. It is literally a privilege to have God show us this is the opportunity. This is me. And how do we receive it? By opening up all that we have. Our pantry is open. Hospitality of the soul. We give to that which is arriving. And so I know that giving sounds like we're sending a, you know, a letter out to you know, Timbuktu with a little check in it. But I want you to realize hospitality of soul is the first symbol of giving. We give unto Jesus because he gave unto us. And what do we give? We give our life. We open up our inn and say, we decomai you. We receive you unto ourself. Take this inn. It was built for you. Be born again in Bethlehem. Ever readiness. 100% ready, 100% of the time to give 100%. It's a, you know, when they were waiting for as long as they were in Bethlehem, it's like, what? He said he's coming. I know he said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but this is taking a long time. You know what happens? You grow a little sluggish. You grow a little lethargic. A little moss begins to grow on you, and you stop looking out the window. And as a result, when the knock comes, you have a full inn. You see, you've decided that having an empty inn for the Messiah doesn't pay very well. And so as a result, you're going to start maybe rent out this room. You'll still keep this room for Jesus. And then you end up renting out that room. And it's like, well, we can still put him on the couch when he comes. Pretty soon you've rented out the whole thing. And when Jesus finally comes, you can't decomine. You can't receive because you stopped prosdecomine. No longer are you seen. No longer do you recognize and remember why you were even given this in. What this in is for. This in is purchased by the blood of Jesus. And it's a house for his very presence. So as we begin to talk about givingness, giving, givingness, as we talk about giving, here's one of the key attributes, ever readiness. Now, there are seasons, and some of you can testify to the same thing. Have you ever received something? Like I remember receiving a gift basket. I think it was from Leslie when I was in missionary school. Uh, she's not here to correct me on this, but I think it was. I was trying at that time to hide that I had any type of correspondence with this girl named Leslie. So when it was sent to me, it was sent to Eric and Mark Ludy, which is my brother, and he was at missionary school with us. Which sort of bothered me because there was all these chocolate chip cookies in there, and he technically had equal share of the chocolate chip cookies. But I wanted to throw everyone off in the postal uh, sense. So they see you know, something from Leslie Ludy to, I'm sorry, Leslie Runkles to Eric Ludy. That's going to look fishy. And so it came to Eric and Mark Ludy, and what we both decided to do was that we were going to give 100% of all this, you know, food goodness in that uh, box to people that needed it around the missionary campus. And so we put it into little bags and put little scriptures with it. And then we exited our little dormitory and went out to give. If any of you have ever done that with a purposeful intent to give, you'll notice the difference between normal life, walking around, and being ever ready to give, and when you actually have stocked 
your entire life full, you know, underneath your, your coat, you're ready to just whip it out and go, here, here's a cookie. <laughs> There's a big difference between the two because you're ever watchful. Everyone you see, you're like, uh-huh, they need a cookie. <laughs> it's an attitude. However, you need to realize that a cheerful giver is organized in their entire life that way. They always are ready to whip out the cookie with the little scripture attached to it to say, I've been thinking about you. You see, you've been waiting at the window looking for that person, but typically we're the begrudging giver. Someone comes up to me at Gust and says, do you have a cookie? We have one cookie left. And we haven't prepared our soul that that cookie doesn't belong to us. That cookie belongs to Jesus. And if Jesus is asking for that cookie, hey, this is what we're here for, is to give our cookie. Absolutely, I have a cookie right here. We don't function that easily in that mode, do we? We have our cookie, and that's the last cookie we have. And so we have a tendency to hoard our last cookie. And I'm not excluded from that. I'm human, just like you are. We don't naturally give cheerfully. We give begrudgingly, because we know it's the right thing to do. Ten virgins started out eager and ready, but when the moment of all moments arrived, only five proved ever ready. There's a difference between starting out ready and proving ever ready. Ever ready is always ready. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready sometimes. And then I grow lax and stop looking out the window because I just need to grab something from the refrigerator. In other words, then something else distracts you in the kitchen and someone else is playing checkers. Like, oh, could I play a game? And pretty soon you forgot about fogging the window with your longing glances. And no longer you looking out. Now, you didn't, you're still in the same house. In the window, you could still see you know, out through the window, but you can't really see down the street. So you can't anticipate the coming anymore. Pretty soon you get drowsy and you fall asleep. Ten virgins started out eager and ready, but when the moment of all moments arrived, only five proved ready. They all started with oil in their lamps. But over time, they, they lost the oil, and then five went to go try and find the oil when they heard that the bridegroom was coming. And when the bridegroom came, there were five that were ready, five that were not. There was an inn in Bethlehem perfectly suited to house the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, but when the knock finally came, there was no room. How does that happen? Well, how does that happen to us? Same thing happens to us all the time. We build this inn with the intention of saying, oh, perfectly suited for the long-awaited Messiah. When the long-awaited Messiah finally comes, you'd stopped looking out the window a long time ago. The good men of the house watched all day long. But when nightfall came, he became drowsy, and while he slept, in crept the thief. That's the illustration Jesus gives. Matthew 25, 13. So what does Jesus say in conclusion? Watch, therefore. Watch. Prosdekomai. Stand at the window. Look. Be watchful. If you have an inn, you're looking for Jesus, and you're also monitoring the thief. Because it's when you become drowsy that the thief can slip in. A captive lion versus a captive possum. That's what I'm going to do instead. Because I have this illustration in my mind of being in Michigan, and I set out a trap for a raccoon. I know some of you are like, oh, how horrible. We had raccoon problems in our chimney when we first got married, and we had fleas all over. Because I guess 95% of fleas house themselves in raccoon fur during the winter. So we had, I think, 95% of all the fleas in Michigan in our room. You could literally see them bouncing out of the carpet. It was absolutely disgusting. So I was trying to catch these critters, and so I had this live animal trap. It was a live animal trap, which means it would be alive after I caught it. 
And so I, I put it out there, and uh, the next morning, guess what? I saw something in it. It was a possum that I had caught. And I was thinking, how cute is that little guy? They really are uh, rather cute, at least to me. And I went out there, and you know how hard it was to get this crazy guy out of the cage? He did not want out. As long as I was there, he did not want out. Now, the reason I'm creating this illustration is to recognize there's a difference between a captive lion and a captive possum. I want you to measure your soul in regards to this. How eager are you to do whatever is outside that cage? When God says, now. And you've been waiting. You've been monitoring everything. Just waiting, anticipating when that door is going to open. What if it opens and there's danger right outside that cage, which inevitably is the case for Christians? You see, God says, now, go. Are we ever ready? Cheerful to give up our life? I don't think so. We're more like the possum that hangs out in the back and says, God, you're going to have to force me out of this cage. If you dump the cage, maybe I'll fall out. But I'm not going to my own accord. And we call that obedience. When God shakes the cage and dumps the out, it's like, I was obedient. <laughs> so a captive lion versus a captive possum. In other words, there's a disposition difference. A lion doesn't care a whit what is outside that cage. He doesn't care. He wants out. A lion is built to go for his adventures. Of course, he might go to a tree and sleep, but he is interested in being outside of that cave or the cage. He does not want to stay in it. And guess what? It doesn't matter what danger is outside. When that gate opens, he's out. And he'll walk out boldly and confidently. You can say, well, he's a lion. Of course he can do that. He's the king of beasts. When you are a Christian, you understand your clothing and you understand your position in Jesus Christ, you start to behave like a lion would. And you begin to realize that nothing can actually touch you unless it gets through Jesus. You are barricaded in by the very person of Jesus Christ. And if it can get through Jesus, sure, it can get to you. Name one thing that can get through Jesus. You can't. That is your armor. You are built as a tank. When that gate opens, you go. If you end up giving up your life, do you know what? It's not that bad of a deal for you. Straight into the presence of Almighty King Jesus. Is there any downside to this? No matter what happens in our life, when that cage opens, we are caged lions ready to go. And it's cheerful. Could you imagine just getting inside the lion's psyche? Finally! And he roars with readiness out of that cage. Luke 12, 35 through 50. So this is a little longer of a scripture than you're anticipating right now because I trimmed it down to make it more easily accessible for you. Let's start it out with a very key line. Let your loins be girded about, which I'm going to give you a little translation, dressed in readiness. Okay, your loins girded about, clothed. You need to be clothed in readiness. This is a command. Let your life be clothed in readiness. And your lights burning. And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open unto him, look at this word, immediately. Okay, if we were to test ourselves against the word immediately, we would be found wanting. You see, we may open the door, which to be honest is great. I'm really glad that most of us in here actually do open the door eventually. But how many of us are delayed? We sit like the possum in the back of the cage 
and we wonder what the consequences would be. What does this mean? How will it affect me? How will it affect my popularity? What will it do to my finances? I'm just not sure about this. Instead of, they may open unto him immediately. They are expecting him. The bridegroom is coming. Do you think there's going to be any hesitation? The bridegroom's coming. Fling the door open immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to eat and will come forth and serve them and he shall come in the second watch. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. You know what's extra difficult in the third watch? He didn't come in the first, didn't come in the second, didn't come in the third. We're in the the most dark part of the night where literally you're starting to wane. You guys all could probably identify with that. Not a lot of good things happen at three in the morning other than sleep. And so even in that watch, there will be a readiness and a watchfulness. doesn't matter which watch he comes in. Are we ready? Are we watching? Measure your soul. I know there are times in my life where I could say, yes, I am watching. And there are other times in my soul where I could say, well, I sort of fell asleep at that post. And that would be an honest assessment of how my soul has worked over the years. However, God has been training me to be ever watchful. I don't want to say it's perfectly watchful. He's perfectly watchful and he's grooming, training, discipling my soul to keep my eyes open always. And this know that if the good men of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speak thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers." And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much, of him shall be much required. Now what's it even talking about? It seems to be talking about the knowledge of the coming. You know the promises of God. You're responsible for those. Stay watchful over your soul. If you don't know the promises of God, if you don't know he's coming, you're still guilty for not watching and for not being ready and for not receiving. But there's even a graver, more serious consequence for those of us that know and yet fail to stay at the window, fogging it with our longing glances. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now listen to this. Jesus has set the stage for a statement here. He has a job to do. He has come. He's been entrusted much. And how am I straightened 
till I be accomplished. Now, the word straightened means very little to probably most of us in here. He's straightened? Is that what it means? Well, let's introduce the word for straightened. Suneko, which means to be pressed, motivated, impelled, compelled, urged, or straightened. It's the growling impetus within the soul that cries out, I must, I must, I must do this. I absolutely must. It is a growl, it is an impetus, it is a compelling urge within. And Jesus says, until I'm done with my task, which is why it's called the passion of the Christ. The passion, the seneco of the Christ. He will accomplish this, and he will not let go. He will not let up. He will not relent until it is done. I must, I must, I must. Caged lion. A caged lion I must get out of here. I must get... Weeks, months, years on end do the same thing, staring at the same door. They're awaiting their release. They're awaiting their moment. Suneko, the captive lion. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. So I'm going to put in the word Suneko. I have a baptism to be baptized with and I am Suneko till it be accomplished. So that's Jesus talking. Jesus was Suneko while he was here on this earth. He was a captive lion. He was focused on one thing. He was pacing back and forth. I must, I must, I must. It was a compelling. He was straightened until that day. He knew what he was here for. He was ready. When the time came, he was ready. So now here's my uh, amplified version of it. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I am pressed, motivated, impelled, compelled, urged, and straightened. And my soul is crying out, I must, I must, I must do this. I absolutely must. I am a captive lion till it be accomplished. So let's look at Paul's use of the word seneco. For the love of Christ constrains us. That's the same word, seneco. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, and that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Why is Paul Seneco? It's because he's focused on the cross. Do you see what Jesus did? He gave up everything for us. How can we live for ourselves? I am Seneco for the glory of the king. I will do whatever he asks, and I cannot keep my mind on anything else but that. I am Seneco. For the love of Christ presses, motivates, impels, compels, urges, and straightens us. And we cry out, we must, we must, we must do this. We absolutely must. We are captive lions. So in agreement with Paul, we say we too are captive lions, Paul. We are ever ready. We are watchful. We are looking for the opportunity to serve the glory of our king. Whatever it costs us, how can we live for ourselves in light of the cross? How can we? Anything we have is available. Any cookie in our coat. When anyone needs it, it's not ours. It's been entrusted to us so that we can give it. Too much has been given, much is required. We've been given a lot of cookies. We have a lot to give. The principle of giving. Cheerfully give, and you will never go without. You see, what's funny is that sounds backwards to us. Here's how we think. Yeah, I give, and then I'll go without. That's how most of us see it. That's actually not the biblical pattern for it. We are willing to give 
and go without. That's a truth. However, the principle is we give and we will never go without. We give in all that is necessary and requisite for our souls, even if we go hungry from a meal. For instance, I may give my cookie and not be able to eat a cookie. However, I don't go without. You know what I get in this place? In exchange for the cookie, I get grace. In exchange for the cookie, I get joy. In exchange for the cookie, I get peace. I get the life of Jesus. You never go without. No matter what you give, the principle is you cannot outgive God. And I tell you what, the grace of God far outweighs and outlasts the value and the benefit of a cookie. I remember, and this is a review for any of you that have heard me say this before. I remember Jackie Pollinger, who lived in the walled city of Hong Kong, making a statement once that haunted me. She said, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. Her room was filled with heroin addicts coming off of heroin. I mean, they were laying on her bed and everything. She was just like mobbed in there with everyone else. You may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. You see, she gave up her comforts to God, her ease to God. And guess what she got back? The grace of God. Most of us are saying, I think I'd rather have the bed. That's because you don't know God's grace. If you knew God's grace, you'd know who's winning in that story. Jackie says that with a smile, a chuckle. A laugh like, oh, if you only knew what I have. See, you all feel sorry for me. I feel sorry for you because you have your own bed, but I know God's grace. And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you have need of these things, but rather seek you the the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So there's this principle. All the heathen, all the nations, what do they go after? Food, clothing, shelter. And this is just what we go after. This is how we live. And what does God say? Take your eyes off of those things. Fix them on me. I'll take care of those things for you. See, the principle of giving is you must take your focus off of yourself, your self-comforts. And you say, my life belongs to Jesus, and he will never forsake me. He has everything I need. It's a risk. I know. It's called faith. It's what a Christian functions by. I know we've rewritten it in the American culture because we have everything here, but that's not how faith functions. Faith does not put its confidence in natural things. It puts its confidence in Jesus Christ. It says, that is my source. And if I focus and fix my gaze on Jesus, if I wait at the window with a longing glance for him, what he's doing in this world, I will never go without. It's a promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. All these things. And I will go as far as to say it's not just food, clothing, and shelter. It's everything you could need for life and godliness, which is found in Christ Jesus. But this I say, and this is a review, but this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Powerful scripture. Proverbs 3. By the way, this is called the king's mashal, the king's dictum. They, he is, the king has made a statement, and it is fact. And when the king speaks in the Proverbs, it's unalterable. It's the rock. Listen to this statement. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thy increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. 
Simple principle of the kingdom. Honor the Lord this way. We as the Christians that believe say this is the way that, God, that God's kingdom functions. So yes, I make myself available and I will honor the Lord. Not just with the first fruits, with all my fruits. See, that's what the New Testament unveils. Our life is wholly and completely given. It's not a requirement. It's a privilege. The aquifer principle. Cheerful, cheerful giving taps into the boundless supply of God Almighty. Some of you have heard me share the aquifer principle. I was outside my house getting ready to mow the lawn. This is quite a few years ago. And I remember looking down at my two cars that were in the driveway, and both of them had bald tires. I had, I think, at least two kids at this time. I may have had three. But Leslie was very vulnerable. At any point in time, these wheels could give out, and you know, it would be bad. And I was really feeling the weight of this, because I really want to take care of my family, but tires? To spend all the money I have on tires is just about as depressing as you can get. And so I remember I was getting ready to pull uh, the starter, and I looked down, and there was those tires. And God sort of initiated some form of a conversation here. I'm not exactly sure how to articulate how I had this conversation with God, because I don't want it to sound overly mystical. However, some sort of conversation with God. And it went sort of like this, if I were to put language to it. Eric, you know what is needed. Why don't you just get new tires? My response, uh, God, you know I don't have the money for new tires. If I had the money, of course I would get new tires. Now, here's what's funny. In my bank account, I actually had enough money to buy tires. Don't get me wrong. However, that money was already spoken for. So the way my mind functions is if money, you know, I need that money to pay my mortgage in a few days. So I can't use this money here to buy tires because that money is already accounted for. It's already spent in my mind. So God sort of said, now you're saying you don't have the money? Well, no, I, I have the money. It's just it's already spoken for. So what you're saying, Eric, is you have the money. Well, no, 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 I don't. I, I, yes, in, in the bank, technically, it's, it has money in it. But that money is needed in a couple days. So, Eric, will you trust me that if you do what you need to do today, that you will have what you need tomorrow? Well, I mean, conceptually, sure. I, I, I mean, this is a huge test for me. Tires! Why would it matter? But this is Christianity. Rubber meeting the road. No pun intended. So this is where the aquifer principle comes from. Here's the surface of the earth, and there's this little puddle. And the puddle is really small. And that's all your provision. That's all the water you have. And you're a thirsty character. However, it's sort of like this situation. God says, uh, <clears throat> you need new tires. Why don't you do what you need to do? But God, it would take up all the water in my puddle. And guess what? I'm afraid that when I give up all the water in my puddle, I will have no more water. That's not how the kingdom of heaven works. See, the kingdom of heaven works in such a way where you visually in the natural realm can only see a little puddle. However, what's underneath that puddle and what's feeding that puddle? An aquifer. What's an aquifer? It's a gigantic underground like ocean. If you could see the ocean, do you think you'd fret about buying tires? If you could see the ocean that it would never cease to supply, do you think you would be fearful and anxious about spending your little puddle? 
Oh, take it all out. It'll come back in. Yeah, you'd have perfect confidence. Why? Because you would see it. That's not faith. Faith functions in God saying, I'm giving you my word that I have an aquifer to supply for you. Will you take me at my word? Will you believe me that you will never run out if you do what you're supposed to do and you function in a life of faith the way you're supposed to function? You will always have what you need. You know what we want? We try and negotiate with God. It's like, God, I like all this faith stuff, but could you just make a bigger puddle? You see, if I had a bigger puddle, it'd make it easier for me to believe in the aquifer because then I'd see more water bubbling around, and that just helps me think of an ocean a little better. So if you could increase my puddle size, then I'll be more giving. Then I will gladly give a puddle's worth, that first puddle, mind you, out of that bigger puddle, and then I'll give that to you, and I'll still have this other which will give me peace of mind. If any of you have functioned as a missionary for any length of time, you know that's not how it works in the kingdom of heaven. That may be how it works in American Christianity, but in the kingdom of heaven, God will oftentimes ask for everything in that puddle. And he'll say, do you trust me? And what does the cheerful giver say? You want my cookie? It's yours. You want my puddle? It's yours. And what do you get? You get a replenished puddle. Happens every time. Have you ever had it where you've been short on money for years? Finally, a bonus amount comes in. You're like, oh, we finally get ahead. And then what happens? Car breaks down? And you're like, oh, I don't want to spend it on that. I finally was able to get ahead. How do you know that God wasn't supplying for the car? We think backwards. We want abundance. We want a barn filled with something. Instead of saying, I have an aquifer filled with all of God. Yeah, I know no one can see it. Everyone thinks I'm a kook because I say, oh, God will provide. But he will. It's a fact. Based on his nature, it's a fact. God loves a cheerful giver. Not just a giver. A cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver knows something that a regular giver doesn't. A cheerful giver looks up at heaven and winks. Says, ah, <laughs> you're good, God. Boy, you got me between a rock and a hard place. If I was functioning in the flesh, yeah, I'd never give that puddle up. I trust you. Wink, smile, leap. Because your faith is going to grow through this. You're going to see the movement of grace on planet Earth. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you. And grace is not, and you'll find this out in your discipleship this semester. It's not merely a hug from God. It is power, ability, strength supplied from heaven so that you can be all that God intends you to be. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Is it good work? God's called you to do it? Oh, he'll supply everything you need to do it. The three ingredients of cheerfulness. Smiling eagerness. Okay, just test yourself on this. Smiling eagerness. Oh, I'd just love to give up everything. And most of us, if we were to test, like, eh. Okay, maybe like eagerness in a theoretical sense. Like, God, you know, I'd love to give my life to you in a bigger sense. Maybe, you know, on the mission field someday. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. It's not the someday eagerness. Smiling eagerness right now to say, God, take it. Gulp. Roaring readiness. 
It's the lion in the cage, pacing back and forth, saying, this cage opens, I'm out. Roaring readiness, always ready, with noise even in the readiness. Roar! Let me out! Let me serve! I'm a true soldier and I'm threatening my cage. I want to give all. Number three, leaping confidence. Hey, world, don't feel sorry for me just because I don't have anything in the bank account right now. Watch. Yeah! Because God will supply. Watch what my God will do. Smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence. Cheerful giving versus cheerful givenness. Most of us get hung up on the concept of giving and think of money, and as a result, do not translate this principle into the Christian life beyond money. However, do you see the closeness of these concepts? Cheerful giving, which we think oftentimes of money, but I'm trying to expand your thinking on that, versus cheerful givenness. We live in such a life as Christians where it's all in. It's not 10%. We do not tithe our life unto Jesus and say, 90% for me, God, 10% for you. 100% belongs to Jesus Christ. He gets it all. And so we're not tithing, we're giving all. And not just our resources, not just 10% of our resources. Not just our time and our energies. Not just our talents and abilities. Whole kit and caboodle. The whole thing goes to God. Cheerfully. Not begrudgingly, cheerfully. Now, you know what would help in this discussion? A clear picture of why we do it cheerfully. A clear picture of the cross. A clear picture of the merit, the beauty, the loveliness, the fairness of Jesus Christ. You see, when you don't see those things, it's begrudging. When you do see those things, you're a caged lion saying, God, let me give more to you. I don't have much, but let me give it to you, please. You know, one of the problems, it's a real problem that we have here at Ellerslie. We have a whole bunch of caged lions that are ready to serve and ready to die for Jesus Christ. However, God wants them a little longer in the cage. They're ready to jump out and spring out and destroy the mission field. (laughs) They're not yet prepped. They're not yet matured to the point where they're actually going to bring benefit. They're still a work in process. It doesn't mean that their, their heart isn't correct, but there's a maturing process that needs to take place And then the gate will open. And then cheerfully they will be released, if you will, into the wilds. And so it actually is one of our challenges because all that takes place in Ellerslie charges the soul. And you find that growl, that roar within you saying, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. It's only been three days. (laughs) We still have eight and a half weeks left. I want to go. I feel called to Kenya. Immediately. That's good. That's a wonderful thing. The caged lion is awakening. However, you wait at the window, fog up the window with your longing, and you know your time will come. Jesus is not investing all of this in you only to have it be sabotaged in your soul. It is growing. It is maturing so that when it comes, it's all the greater delight. When you see, I still remember my parents, they went off one day to go buy, I want to say a camper or a uh, motor home, I don't remember what, they, what it was called, and they didn't come back for hours. I stood at the window and waited, and I remember East Fremont Drive, it went down and then it bent, and so I stared at the bend in the road all night long. I remember that was the first night I ever had coffee. Uh, 
I stared at the bend in the road, looking longingly out there, fogging the window. And I'll never forget the moment because I appreciated it so much more because of the wait. When that big motor home, which I think my parents had to return because the codes in the neighborhood didn't allow for it, but that's a different story. Uh, it's a hope deferred, makes the heart sick. This is, <laughs> seeing that, that motor home come around the corner was pure euphoria. It's here! They're here! Chrisley Market, get out here! Look at it! There it is! Oh, wow! It's huge! It's going to be amazing! And guess who's opening the door immediately? The one who's waiting at the window, drinking coffee. <laughs> the instant, the ready, the immediate, the well-oiled. Let your loins be girded about, be dressed in readiness, and your lights burning. And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, for when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open unto him immediately. When God asks for the cookie, when he asks for the puddle, and he says, please, please, will you give? Now, does God need? He has the whole aquifer. Does he need? He wants to build you. He wants to grow you. The only way that you're going to grow in grace is through giving. But not just any kind of giving. Cheerful giving. When you learn this principle, it's not because God is needful of $10 from you, which might be all you have in your name. And he's like, because it doesn't seem rude for God to ask for your last $10. Like here he has the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's like asking for your $10. It's like, excuse me, God, this is all I have. You have everything. He's not asking because he has a need. He's asking because you have a need. And you need to grow in grace. And so he says, trust me with that 10. And you'll find not only will you have 10, you'll probably have 100. And it's not because this is a health, wealth, and prosperity message. I'm not trying to give you the great interest rate in the kingdom of heaven so you can go, ah, that's how I get rich. God is going to ask for everything and he will supply you in every way you will possibly need. You sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And I'm not talking about money here, first and foremost. That's an ancillary derivative issue. I'm talking about your life. You give up the poor, miserable existence that you already have. Living in the flesh, living in sin, you give that up. And what do you get back? Life abundant, full of glory. Intimate connectivity and relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the creator of the universe. You cannot outgive God. The reason he is asking, the reason he is knocking is because he wants to grow you up in grace. He wants to give you the privilege of giving. And if you learn to give with expectancy, readiness, a roaring soul saying, look what my God will do in full confidence and faith, you will discover the vestibule of heaven, the full nature of Jesus Christ. Is your inner lion pacing. There are times when I have an inner lion, but it's not pacing. And I'm starting to take on some possum-like qualities. I don't usually know that that's happening. It's not that I'm fully aware of the fact that I'm becoming a possum. It's just that once you stop staring out that window and fogging it with your longing glances, and you come up with any small excuse to say, well, you know, I just need a quick break here. I mean, someone, can't, God doesn't expect us to always stand there watching, does he? And we then talk to each other. It's like, no, God, doesn't, uh, he doesn't expect that. And so what do we do? We come up with an excuse. And at first, it's just a quick break. 
but then it can oftentimes turn into a couple years of a break. I want us to freshly test our soul and say, is your inner lion pacing? The measurement of humility. How well do you handle personal error? One of the ways to test if your inner lion is pacing is it's always ready to do what God is asking of you. Cheerfully. Cheerful givenness. Remember, some of you probably have heard me say this. I remember this man from missionary school that was teaching us, and he said, one of the best ways to measure humility is the moment you know you're wrong, you start counting. It's like the ticks of a clock. How long does it take before you're ready to admit it? There's your measurement right there. How How does a lion, how does a captive lion handle it? The moment you recognize that you're wrong, that that was pride, that was arrogance, you were wrong. What do you do? You leap from the cage and say, that's wrong. Will you forgive me for my pride? See, that's a measurement of humility. How's your inner lion doing? Do you want to wait a couple days? That's how a lot of us, that's the possum inside of you. The inner lion is ready to leap from the cage and make it right for the glory of the king. The measurement of courage. How well do you respond to the suggestion of fear? When you recognize in your soul that you're beginning to tremble, and a Christian doesn't tremble, there is no fear in the Christian life. How quickly do you get back up on the horse and say, my confidence lies in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to fret. I'm not going to forebode. I'm not going to give any place to fear. No, not on this watch, not in this body. I do not allow that thief in. How quickly do you perform the good men of the house's duty, the innkeeper's duty, and get all out so that your house is fully available to Jesus Christ? The measurement of purity. How well do you handle or respond to temptation? When the temptation comes, you may not be aware of it at first, but it begins to settle. It begins to build a nest. How quickly, when you recognize what is going on, do you blast it in the authority of Jesus Christ? How quickly do you spring from that cage? If you're a possum in regards to temptation, you'll be overrun by the devil. You have to have the roaring lion of readiness inside of The measurement of joy. How well do you respond to trials? You see, a lot of us, when a trial comes, we begin to grumble and complain. No, 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 no. That's how a possum would behave. A lion leaps forth with the joy of having a trial in the first place. I know that isn't the way most of us function. That's the way a Christian functions. A Christian leaps for joy. You know what it says? When you are falsely accused, leap for joy. All right, now... To most of us, false accusation would be an excuse to go into our room and sob. It says in Scripture, leap for joy. Hmm. You know that the scriptural response to almost every single thing that could ever touch your soul is the antithesis and almost 100% backwards from everything you probably normally do? Which one's right? Your response or God's response? We could say, well, I don't know how to do God's response. Well, that's why we need to be discipled. We need the grace of God to begin to behave as God has commanded us to obey. You know that he has not given us a command that he's also not going to provide us with the grace to obey? We, physically, humanly speaking, can't do it. I agree with that. He can do it in us. The measurement of peace. How well do you respond to the bait of anxiety, fretting, and foreboding? The cheerful yes, Lord. Okay, this is a little test, a little pop quiz, which means you didn't have any preparation. You're just sort of getting blasted with this thing. I don't know how many of you are squirming in your seat yet. I'm squirming in the, <clears throat> whatever we call this up here. It's not really a pulpit, is it? So, but I'm squirming a little up here. This is a hard message for me, too. The cheerful yes, Lord. Springing from the cage. The instant, the ready, the immediate, the well-oiled obeying without pause, 
without delay, without further weighing of the matter. You know what God has asked you to do. What do you do? Spring from the cage. Do it. Now, don't be the possum. Don't come up with excuses. Yes, it could be dangerous out there. You're clothed in the lion of the tribe of Judah. Becoming the cheerfully generous, the giving, <clears throat> the given. A.K.A. obedient with our time, our money, our house, every facet of our life. You could put anything in that list. But becoming obedient, cheerfully obedient, in lending it to God. Saying, God, this technically isn't mine. Gulp, it belongs to you. And that's a little scary, to be honest. We don't know what he's going to do with it. However, he's not going to override his agenda in your life to meet someone else's need. He's not going to bury you under some load of bricks of difficulty. Meanwhile, someone else is just blessed because he wants to strengthen you in the process. You may have difficulties in serving. You may be without any money in your pocket because you gave. You may be without food because you gave your last cookie. But guess what? You are never without when you have Jesus. He will give you everything you need. If you do not have food, you know what you'll have? You'll have food that others know not of. Where do I get that from? That's Jesus. He didn't have food in the natural sense. But he didn't lack any joy or any cheerfulness. He says, no, 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 I have food that others know not of. You know what I've thought when I heard that? It's like, huh, I'd sort of like to try that food. I remember going on a fast once, and it was a deliberate choice to say, every time I start to feel the pangs of hunger, I'm going to ask God to feed me with that food that he's talking about. You know what? It was profound. And I was able to chew on something spiritually that actually satisfied my being in a way that food didn't. But you could only have it by relinquishing. I'm not going to just ask all of you to just go fast for the heck of fasting. I'm going to say you do it in obedience. But when you respond in obedience and you are without, guess what? You have food that others know not of. You have time that others know not of. You have money that others know not of. You have everything you will possibly need for this life that others know not of. Because the only way to know of it is to trust God, is to give up your puddle. You see, you'd never know that there's an aquifer under that puddle unless you took everything out of that puddle in obedience and watched it be refilled. How does your faith grow? By staring at a puddle? No, by giving that puddle and then watching it fill back up. Oh, I have an aquifer. And God says, yeah, I know. I've been telling you that this whole time. I, I know, but I just saw it. He goes, yeah, exactly. See, that's why I asked you to give so I could build your faith, so I could grow your confidence so that you would be confident that there is an ocean beneath the surface that you can't see, that you can always trust me that I will provide. Understanding the I can't. Have you ever said that in your soul? I can't do that, God. I just can't. You're asking too much of me, okay? Could you lay off my soul? I can't, I can't do that. Hmm. You can't do that. Well, part truth. You're pathetic. Okay, I'm going to include myself. We're pathetic. We do not have the equipment to obey God. We do not have the equipment to please God, which is why God sent forth his son to provide us the equipment. We have the equipment in Christ Jesus. This little puddle in and of itself is not sufficient. However, what did Jesus do? He connected that little puddle with the aquifer. He did the work. He has made it possible. So now we can give up the little we have, and what does he do? He keeps supplying more so we can function in a way that we never could otherwise. Recognizing our inner repulsion to cheerful generosity. There is something, and I, I can only measure my own soul, but I have a hunch because I deal with people for a living. 
that you understand what I mean when I say there's an inner repulsion, not a cheerful readiness, there's an inner repulsion to this message. It's a dangerous message, it's an extreme message. We wanna throw it out as some crackpot message so that we can be excused from it in our conscience. I don't want this message, what a terrible message. There's part of you that is attracted to this message and you have to admit, that's just truth, God said it. But there's another part of you that doesn't want this message to be true because if it is true, it means it means it more challenging life. It doesn't have the nice order to it. I want the barn full of extra provisions so if I'm ever short over here, I don't have to go to an aquifer. I can go to my barn. We want dependence on something, anything outside of God. I don't want to have to trust the unseen. Faith is work. It's labor. Mm-hmm. It is. It's hard work. That's why God says it's the work of a believer. What, what is the work of a believer? To believe. That's what we're supposed to do. We're like, huh? That's my work? That's your job description. You work for the Father. It's called the Father's business. And your job is to believe in Jesus Christ, is to believe in his ability, is to believe in his cross work, is to believe in the efficacy of his shed blood, is to believe that his life that was poured out for us is given to us, and that when we clothe ourselves in that life, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. That's our job. So in every situation, we go, no, I have everything. Why? Because we're believing. No, I, the, God will take care of us. But, but you have an empty puddle. Watch, it'll fill back up. And everyone's like, what? Cuckoo. Like, no, watch. And guess who's cuckoo after it fills back up? Hey, you're the cuckoo. <laughs> I believe God. God is right. God is true. And he always will be. But who in this generation is willing to believe him? Giving ear to hard truths. Okay, I'm going to give some hard truths here. I'm just going to throw them out in the air and let them just sort of find a place to land in your soul. Go. Ah. Well, that's for other people. I feel called to stay. You know that every single one of us is called to go. It doesn't mean we're called to go to North Korea. But we are called to go in a disposition of readiness. To say, I need to take that which God has given me to others. You could go down the street, but you're called to go. You're not called to stay. You're not called to hoard. You're called to give. Go. What if God wanted me to go? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Think about this. How many of you have plugged your ear to that? No, 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 I can't hear that one. If there's anything that you've plugged your ear to, you're behaving as a possum. You're not behaving as the cage lion. The cage lion is a cheerful giver, ready at an instant. Now, think about this. Go. Do you have smiling eagerness over that one? Do you have roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Ellerslie students oftentimes do by the end of nine weeks. That is actually a truth. And it's almost like they just need to stay in their cage a little longer. Some of them are actually ready to go. Give. Gulp. And all you have is $10 in your pocket. I don't know if any of you have ever been taxed to the utter limits. I remember once, I think I had $5 left at missionary school. And God asked for $5. You know how hard it is to give $5 when it's the last $5? You know when you have $50,000, giving $5 is not that difficult. But when it's your last $5, it's a big deal. And I remember I needed saline solution. Contacts. God. Hey, if I give that $5, I'm not going to have saline solution, which will cause a domino effect of disasters in my life. I'll be walking around, get hit by a car. I've got all sorts of issues here. I need that $5. It wasn't a very cheerful giving. 
However, I didn't get this message back then. So it was begrudging giving, but I still was obedient. Okay, here's my $5. It's everything I have, God. I just want to remind you of that. If I get hit by a car, (laughs) give. What if God wanted me to give? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Repent. What if God wanted me to repent? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Oh, God, what was that? Repent? Absolutely. Anything for you. If there's any impediment in my soul, it's out of here. Are you the roaring lion, the leaping lion from the cage? Say, if God needs me to repent, absolutely I'm going to repent. This is a good prep for your time at Ellerslie, by the way. Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Confess. Oh, no. Wait till this one starts knocking. Confess. How about God, I just confess to you, okay? We have a thing going here. I'll just confess to you. It's like confess one unto the other, or one unto the other. It's like, no, I don't need to do that. That's ridiculous. I know it says that there, but not in this case. Well, it's true. In some cases, just deal with God. In other cases, what's he going to do? He's going to ask. He's going to say, will you open up and allow me to use you as a training instrument to the body of Christ? Will you confess that before others? Not because you did it to others, not because you offended others, but as a demonstration to the body that you are willing to stand with truth no matter what it looks like to your reputation. Ah! Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? If God asks for anything, if he asks for the puddle, do you think he's going to leave you hanging? He'll fill up that puddle. What if he asks you to do something that's uncomfortable? He'll supply you with the grace every time. I can guarantee it. Humble yourself. What if God wanted me to ask for help? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Say goodbye to all you hold dear. Gulp. What if God wanted me to leave it all behind? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Whoa, God wouldn't actually ask me to die, would he? Welcome to Christian history. This is the essence of it. You see, you die to self daily. You pick up your cross daily. Dying is just normal, and God will say it a lot to you. It's time to die. You're starting to come back to life there, Eric. We need to die. And that means to relinquish your position. It doesn't actually mean... Mortal death means a spiritual giving up of position to enthrone him and to say, I serve the living God. However, you know what it also means? We gladly give up our bodies to Jesus Christ. He gave up his life for us, and what do we do? We gladly give up our bodies, our lives, our blood to him. That's what communion means, by the way. You're literally saying, I'm willing to die when you take communion. You may not have known that, but you've been saying it to God for a long time. We're literally saying, my body and my blood for yours, in exchange. He gave you his body and blood, now you're saying, my body and my blood belong to him. He can spend it any way he wants. Die. What if God wanted me to lay down my life? Will I cheerfully give my ear to hear it? Is there smiling eagerness, roaring readiness, leaping confidence? Something is wrong with us. We are not by nature an instant, ever-ready, immediate, well-oiled, cheerful giver. I don't know about you, but I'm going to start by saying, I want to be. There are, if you were to look at the tapestry of my whole life, or the, just the topography of all my life, if it was a map, 
You know, the high points in different areas could be where Eric's ready and eager to give. And then there's some low points, just little aspects. I might not even see him right now, even as I'm talking to you. But different areas that when God touches them, I find a little grumble come out instead of a, a readiness and a smile and a leap. But there's certain areas of my life that if you poked at it, you'd think, Eric is so strong in that area. He's always ready to give. Well, yeah, in that area. Mainly because I've tested God in that area. He's proven to me over time in that area. But there's other areas where I'm a little reticent. I'm a little more possum-like. I just want to be like Jesus. I want to be ever watchful. He commands it, and I want to be that. However, you know what? I can't dig inside of myself to find the solution. So if I'm disgusted with myself this morning, I say, Ugh! I'm so tired of not being perfect. You know that I can't just dig down into the grit and determination of my own soul to be made more like Jesus Christ? Sort of a helpless feeling. And you could say, well, what hope do you have then, Eric? Well, it's called the gospel. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything that was needful for me to live as I ought to be living was made available to me in the person of Jesus Christ. All of it. Every bit of it. A lot of us look at the cross as merely being a covering for sin. So that if I look to the cross, I won't have eternal damnation. I won't be eternally separated from Jesus because I will be forgiven and cleansed of my sin. Well, that's a wonderful attribute of the cross, no doubt. But it's one piece of the cross. The cross also supplies me grace. Grace to live. Grace for help in time of need. And by the way, a time of need isn't just when you die and you're about to go to hell. And you're like, hey, God, I need some grace right now. I need grace every moment of my life. When temptation comes, what do I need? Grace. I need a defense. I need a response. I need a God response. I need a God growl. I need a readiness to spring from a cage. That's not naturally in me, but it is in God. You know that God wants to move into the life of Eric Ludi and begin to roar like a lion? He wants to pace back and forth within this life and say, Eric, do you understand what I'm doing? I'm creating a suneco within you an impelling, a compelling. I must, I must, I must, I must. The same way Jesus went to the cross is the same way he wants to grow inside of us. A suneco, a desire, a yearning. Until it is accomplished, I must, I must, I must, I must, I must. And we find ourselves watching out the window for all the promises of God to be fulfilled in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in the church, and in this world. Introducing Jesus the ever-instant, ever-ready, ever-immediate, ever-well-oiled, cheerful giver. Okay, so if you want to be a cheerful giver, you cannot do it yourself. You are not naturally a cheerful giver. You are naturally belligerent, self-centered, and a barn store-upper. You want your excess for yourself. And your last cookie, there's no way anyone's touching it. Just think about how you grew up around the dinner table. You know that dessert in the middle? Instead, the worst thing that could ever happen is there's like one cookie left and there's three people that want it all at the same time. Everyone reaches for it. You feel a tinge of guilt, but hey, if you don't fight for it, you don't get it. However, could you imagine how hard it is, especially as a guy? It's the only way I've ever grown up is as a guy, so I don't know what it's like for a girl. (laughs) To hold back and say, no, 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 that's yours. Now, that wasn't cheerful. How about this? Oh, you want that? Oh, it's my privilege. You take that. It's cheerful, knowing that God will supply you something even better than a chocolate chip cookie, which I know for some of you is hard to imagine. (laughs) But God's grace will outgive it. 
But you have to be willing to come into agreement with God and say, no, this is how God works. This is the principle of his kingdom. Watch what my God will do. Introducing grace for help in time of need, for the readiness to spring from the cage. That readiness comes from God. Don't try and whip it up and work it up. Ask for it. Say, God, in Jesus Christ, you say that I will have grace for help in time of need. I need that suneco, the same thing you had, Jesus, when you were here, and the same thing that motivated Paul. I need it because I don't have it. I'm a possum in a cage. I don't want to get out. The door's wide open. God's saying, go, and I don't want to. What's wrong with me? And he says, you really want me to answer that? You have a serious disorder, a serious problem. It's called selfishness. You have taken the control position in your body. You have sat in the throne, and as a result, there is a principle known as sin or the flesh that controls your life. And that which you want to do, you can't do. You can esteem Seneco, but you can't perform it. You can esteem pacing like a lion. You can esteem cheerful givenness, but you can't perform it. You don't have the means to. And so what do you do? You cry out and say, what must I do to be saved from this sin? And God says, bingo. I'm right here. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Why? So in a short way, in a short sense for this message, we could become cheerful givers. He gave to make us right. He gave to change what was wrong in us, to correct that which was wrong in us so that we could begin to function as God intended us to function. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. But he doesn't just say that and then hold it over us and go, and you're not. He says, I love a cheerful giver. So would you allow me to make you one? And what do we say? We deco mine, we receive it. We receive Jesus and say, please come in and make me a cheerful giver because I'm not. I'm a belligerent one. I'm a begrudging one. I'm an upset one. I have actually gotten mad, probably most of us in here. I've gotten mad in my past at God for asking for things that I gave. It's like, God, I'm going to do it, God. But that really hurts. That's not a cheerful giver. I want to be a cheerful giver in every dimension of my life, not in a few, in every dimension. Since we started with a CT stud quote, let's finish with one. Not that there's a rule to it, but you want to get as many CT stud quotes in as you can. <laughs> Difficulties, dangers, disease, death, or division won't deter any but chocolate soldiers, possums, from executing God's will. doesn't matter what's outside that cage. It's only possums that stay in the cage. Difficulties, dangers, disease, death, or divisions. It's all waiting us as Christians. There's a dangerous world out there that wants us dead. Cage opens and God says, it's your hour. Huh? And the lion springs forth. But the chocolate soldier, as C.T. Studd would call it, is the possum. He looks like a soldier, sort of. I mean, he's in the cage like the lion was, but something's different about this little guy. He melts in a time of heat. He's a chocolate soldier. When someone says there was a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. Cage opens, and the rest of the world says, Oh, no, there's danger. There's a lion out there. He'll devour you. And what does the life of Jesus say within you? Is that all? Hey, could someone put a bear or two besides? I, let's make this more challenging. 
You see, you're not just ready to leap from the cage. You want the odds to be stacked against you because God is the God of the impossible. And the more impossible it is, the more powerful God is going to be demonstrated in this generation. Hey, isn't there a lion or two or bear or two beside? Come on, only a lion? That's nothing for my God. Do you have a confidence that your God is able? If you do, prove it. Give up your life cheerfully. That's one of the number one evidences that you believe your God is able. Oh, no, watch what God's going to do in my life. I'm giving it to him. He deserves it. Some of you that are just arriving feel that we're moving way too fast. (laughs) You actually might have preferred a a little message on tithing. (laughs) However, the gospel starts right at the top. It means everything. I know in American Christianity, we've diminished it to mean just a little fragment of your life. Just believe, just, you know, give mental assent to Jesus and everything will be fine for you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's everything. And so, I would like to be in agreement with the Bible. And though it may hurt, though it may sting, though it may be challenging, I want to say it means everything. And I want us to cheerfully be willing to give our God everything. As we stare at Jesus, I tell you what, there's no one more beautiful. There's no one more worthy. And you'll wish you had more to give. I just wish I had more. Do you remember that... that That's him that says, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. This one tongue, not enough. Oh, for a thousand. I wish I had more in my pantry to give God, but it's empty. I gave it all. Is there anything more? And so you look around. God, I I don't have much. But what I do have, I don't know why you'd even want it. But here it is. It all belongs to God. And you cheerfully can give it. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.